uh, Luke records the growth of the early church. And by early church, I mean the earliest church, the first church. Immediately after Luke's account of the day of Pentecost, I, I got a little bit of ringing. Is that me? Test, 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 test. Yo. I sound okay? Wow. That's the first time in my life that someone's ever told me my voice sounds good. Thank you so much, Mike. You're my hero. Oh, and Sally can hear. Oh, we're, we're happy. We're happy. All right. So, you know, remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is, is preparing to ascend into heaven. He tells his disciples that you've got a mission before you, but wait until you're clothed with power. Wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts chapter 2, then, you've got this day of Pentecost. Uh, all of Acts chapter 2 from chapter, from chapter 2 verse 1 to verse 41 is about the day of Pentecost, the day in which the Holy Spirit fell. Empowered then by the Holy Spirit, the disciples go out and they proclaim the mighty works of God in unlearned human languages to the point that the crowd hears and are overwhelmed wondering what's going on. Peter then proclaims, well, all of this is happening because of Jesus, the crucified, risen, and ascended Messiah. Now, at verse 41 of Luke or Acts chapter 2 is a summary verse for the day of Pentecost. Listen to that. So those who received his word, those who received Peter's preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I'm not a math major, but that's pretty awesome growth. Uh, when dawn emerged, uh, when the sun broke the horizon on the morning of Pentecost, the church was about 120. That's what uh, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. And as the sun descended on that same day, the church numbered about 3,120. That's pretty awesome. That's about the number of bandwagoners that jump on Alabama's bandwagon when they win a national championship. <laughs> it's about the number of uh, Florida fans that become Florida State fans when they win a national championship. Oh, see, it was okay when it was Alabama. I understand. Luke then, beginning in verse 42, he gives a summary not of the day of Pentecost, but he gives a summary of what the earliest church looked like in their life together. He describes its habits and its patterns. He describes how church members cared for one another, how they shared with one another, and he describes the results of their evangelistic outreach. They continued to grow. In this summary passage, Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, St. Luke records four points of devotion, four things around which the individuals of the church were joined, and thus four things that describe, that, that, that uh, characterize their life together. Now, this comes so incredibly close to the, the events of the day of Pentecost, that Anglican pastor John Stott has referred to these four points, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, as evidence of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so the life of the church from the earliest days, filled in the power of the Holy Spirit, was characterized by devotion to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at each one of these in turn. This morning, we're going to talk about the apostles' teaching. The earliest church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, I want to give you a spoiler alert. If over the next few minutes you kind of phase out, maybe you, you wonder what's going on on your Facebook or your Twitter feed, and you, you check that out, I want to let you know how I'm going to end this particular sermon. The er Spoiler alert, the earliest church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, and the modern church should be no less devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the beginning and the end of the sermon. Now, <clears throat> I hope that you pay attention. Let's start by talking about this concept, devoted. Right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We live in a society in which some commentators have said we are commitment-phobic. We're afraid of commitment. And so I think it's really good for us to spend some time together thinking about what does devotion actually mean. We live in a society in which we are committed to something until something better comes along. And folks, it may be easy for us to say, well, that's a, a millennial generation problem, or that's a snowflake generation problem, that's a 20s problem. It's not. It's across the board within our culture. We have become commitment phobic. We will commit to something until something better comes along. That's not biblical devotion. It's not biblical devotion. To be devoted to something is commitment to something and with it a firm, persistent, faithful pursuit of that something. To be devoted to something means you pursue it with constant diligence. You chase after it with continual action that never gives up or lets up. Devotion is a full body, full person commitment to the object of devotion. Think about what it takes to be an Olympic athlete. And I bring this up as an illustration of what devotion is because, quite frankly, I think it, it, it puts our faith in Jesus to shame with the way some people are devoted to achieve human glory. Michael Phelps, the, the American swimmer, right? We all know who Michael Phelps is, right? The most decorated Olympian of all time. He has 28 total medals. Only 23 of them are gold. Underachiever. <laughs> right, so 28 total medals. Phelps, right, of course, he's got natural talent, natural ability. The guy is built like a torpedo. He's six foot four, but his wingspan stretches out to six feet seven inches. He's got feet that are like flippers, right? He is sort of a human dolphin. So, of course, he's got natural talent. But all the talent in the world does not win you 28 total medals. He had to devote himself from the age of seven devote himself to becoming an Olympic swimmer. A coach of Olympic swimmers, Rachel Stratton Mills, points out that athletes train, swimming athletes train 12 months out of the year. Kids who compete, kids that Rachel Stratton Mills coach, they begin to swim and, and seek to be competitive, and they have to train two to three hours a day, seven days a week. On top of that, for Coach Stratton Mills, she requires at least three two-a-days workouts. So on top of working out seven days a week, there are three days in which the kids, seven years old, get up before school, go and spend two to three hours a day in the pool, 
then go to school, then get out from school, probably have a snack, and then go swim another two to three hours, right? So you add, and then you add into that competition and you add into that travel. A father of an Olympic hopeful, his name is Ben Powell, uh, reports that to even have the remotest chance to qualify, to qualify, to be in the Olympics, a swimmer will have had to swim 10,000 meters per day. Plus cross-training, exercise, workouts, spending more than 20 hours per week. So Phelps begins swimming competitively at the age of seven. I can't remember his exact age when he swam in his first Olympics. He was a teenager, but let's just say he was 19 years old. I don't know for sure, but if he was 19 years old and had begun swimming at the age of seven in order to get to the Olympics, he would have spent 12 years swimming 10,000 meters a day with more than 20 hours a week in the pool. Like so many others with Olympic aspirations, Phelps would not have had much time for anything outside of education, school, and pool. It consumed him. He was devoted to it. It framed his life, his behavior, his actions. It was the object of his devotion. He pursued it with constant diligence. And because it was the object of his devotion, it had authority over him. So being devoted to something means that you give yourself over to the object of your devotion, and it also means your life is ordered around that thing under its authority. Being devoted to an object means you pursue it with constant diligence. You want it. You want to have it, to hold it. You want it to form you, and it frames our activities in very being. The earliest church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was one of those things, one of four points of devotion that the earliest church pursued with constant diligence, chased after. And the apostles' teaching was one of these four things that formed a framework for their life together and as individuals. It was authoritative for them and how they would live and how they would move and how they would be. So that's devotion, right? So, so the question is, well, what is the apostles' teaching? I'm glad you asked. First off, in my highly scientific evaluation, we notice that the apostles' teaching is teaching that comes from the apostles. Yes. Yes, I'm sure that half of you right now are thinking, thank you, Captain Obvious. There's a significant point in this to say that it's teaching that comes from the apostles because of who the apostles were. In Luke chapter 6, he records the apostles being Simon, whom Jesus named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. And in Luke chapter 6, he also includes Judas Iscariot. When we get to Acts chapter 2, Judas Iscariot has been removed from the conversation uh, because of his betrayal of Jesus. But the apostles were those men, especially selected, especially called, and especially commissioned by Jesus to walk alongside of Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to witness Jesus' life, 
to witness Jesus' ministry, to hear Jesus' teaching, to see Jesus die upon the cross, and to be witnesses to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, these apostles received from Jesus the very specific task, the very specific mission, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, while the apostles were not the only believers in Jesus to receive this commission, they are not the only believers in Jesus to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, I do think we can consider the apostles to be the pointy end of the spear. In that earliest church, the apostles had authority because of their proximity to Jesus. They had been entrusted by Jesus as guardians of the deposit of truth, guardians of his teaching. And there lies the importance of the apostles being the primary teachers here, and therein lies the content of what they had to teach. The apostles' teaching, quite frankly, would have just been Jesus. It would have been about Jesus. A great example of this are the sermons found in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3, and Peter's statements before the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4. The apostolic teaching, or the apostles' teaching, was gospel teaching, gospel preaching. It was kingdom proclamation. It was significant preaching because it is Jesus preaching. That's the apostles' teaching. Now, it's not just biography of Jesus. As Peter's examples show, in fact, uh, the, the preaching of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, would have been about sin and about salvation. It would have been about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It was about his ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was also about the coming into his kingdom, what it would look like to be baptized into his kingdom and, and how to live within his kingdom. And so the apostles' teaching would have also been teaching that Jesus himself had taught. Remember again those last words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Go therefore, make disciples, baptize them, and teaching them, all to, observe, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so the point here that I'm making is that the apostles' teaching is something to be devoted to because it is about Jesus. It is from Jesus. The point that we're seeing here is that the apostles' teaching is something to be devoted to because it is authoritative precisely because it is about Jesus. It wasn't made up by the apostles. St. Peter says in his second letter that they did not follow cleverly devised myths, but rather they proclaimed the, the eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. Uh, John in 1 John chapter 1 says, We didn't make this up, rather we proclaim that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon and touched. There's authority in the apostles' teaching because of who they are and what they proclaim. So the earliest church, as a corporate body and as in the constituent members of the body, were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They sought after it. They hungered for it. They wanted to know Jesus more. They wanted to understand Jesus more. They wanted to love 
Jesus more. And so they sat at the feet of the apostles to hear the teaching of Jesus. They learned and desired to learn. And so we have then the apostles' teaching both filling the content of their faith as it talks about Jesus and life in Jesus. And we have then the apostles' teaching providing the authoritative framework of their life and faith together. That's what they were devoted to. That's great, you may be thinking to yourself. But what difference does it make? We don't exactly live in the days of the apostles now, do we? Well, there may not be apostles in the sense of Peter and James and John and Paul walking amongst us today. We do have the faithful and perfect witness of the apostolic teaching because we have the New Testament. We have their teaching written down. About this, uh, scholar F.F. Bruce has commented, in due course, this apostolic teaching took shape in the New Testament scriptures. So you ask me, you know, so what? What's the big deal? Well, I'd say this, devotion to the apostles' teaching and all of the Bible, the Apostle Paul uh, considers all of Scripture to be breathed out by God, is no less a distinguishing mark of the church of Jesus today than it was 2,000 years ago. As an aside, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation was the recovery of the authority of Scripture and the freedom of individuals to have and read the Bible with their own eyes. I think that seems to be pretty uh, significant. One of the marks of the church, as the 19th of the Anglican 39 article states, is a congregation of faithful men and women in which the pure, God, pure Word of God is preached. And so for us today... We can be no different than the earliest church of 2,000 years ago. If the earliest church was devoted to the apostles' teaching because it was about Jesus and from Jesus and was authoritative, that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed at all. And in fact, I would submit to you, I would submit to you that uh, the further we get away from following after the apostles' teaching, the less we actually have to say to the world around us. And I would tell you, and I, I firmly believe this, the further we get away, uh, the further a church gets away from the Bible as the rule for doctrine and life and faith, the less it is a church <clears throat> devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to the word of God. Writing to his protege, Timothy, uh, St. Peter points out the importance of Scripture when he writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not, in, will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
I don't have to work too hard to start talking about the fact that Paul can say the time is coming and we would have to say the time is here. The time is here when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, creating for themselves an echo chamber, and that which what they think and say is repeated back to them only to reaffirm and confirm that which they think and say and continue to spew forth and receive back. The reality for us is that devotion to the pure word of God preached, taught, as individuals and as a church is absolutely necessary for our life together, for our life in Jesus as individuals, and for any witness that we may have to the wider world. It's absolutely essential. Folks, if we get away from proclaiming Jesus as he's revealed in the apostles' teaching, as he's revealed in all of Scripture, we literally have nothing to say. Our teaching, our study, our learning, our proclamation must be Jesus. It must be his life in ministry, his crucifixion and resurrection. It must be his ascension and his coming return. It must be bound up with what Jesus himself taught. The difficulty is, the rub is, the scripture has a way of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And we don't like that much. The author of Hebrews says that Scripture, the Word of God, is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Paul told his, his young friend Timothy that, that the, the Scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, for training in righteousness. He says, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. These are things that we don't naturally like. Who likes to be reproved or corrected? Who likes to be reproved or rebuked? We like exhortation as long as it makes us feel good. If we look at Scripture and we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us in understanding, we are going to come up to things that we, quite frankly, don't like because of what it reveals about who we are as we come to it. Scripture points out course corrections to us Scripture reveals sin to us. Scripture calls us to account. I can guarantee you that if you read Scripture and you never are offended by what God says to you about yourself, you're reading it wrong. And I can guarantee you that at some course in my, in my life with you as preacher, I guarantee you that if I preach the word of God, at some point you're going to be angry with me because of what I've said. It may be today. <laughs> if I haven't already ticked you off, I will. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? When scripture confronts us with our sin, with our sickness, with our brokenness, when Scripture confronts us with our need, Scripture is always good and faithful because God is always good and faithful to confront us with grace to forgive, grace to restore, grace to rebuild. And that's why we have to proclaim Scripture because we have to see the reality of sin, death, and hell and we have to see the reality of life in Jesus blessed by the gift of His Holy Spirit. We have to see that. Not just in this room, but in our lives among our family, friends, and neighbors. 
Scripture points out to us Jesus and all the promises of true life in God. Scripture talks about how we can be reconciled to the Father in Jesus, how we can be blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. That's why we are uh, conf- uh, confronted with Scripture. That's why we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Because only here do we find Jesus. And only in Jesus do we find life. So being a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom requires devotion to the apostles' teaching. Because it's about Jesus, and it's from Jesus. It points to Jesus. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It lets us understand what it's like to be in Jesus. It shows us our need to be in Jesus. Hearing them, reading them, marking them, learning them, inwardly digesting them. Jesus is found as he is revealed, and the Spirit works to transform our lives. A spirit-filled church is a learning church. The church of Jesus, no matter where it lies, within space and time, is devoted to the apostles' teaching as a body and as individuals. And I challenge you, devote yourselves to the word of God. I said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.